Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Solutions Watch. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And yes, here on Solutions Watch, where week after week after week after week, I am here in this exploration with you, looking at ways that we can improve ourselves and hopefully the world um, week by week and little by little. Well, today I have a suggestion for you in the form of a book. Yes, why not? Because it's been at least one week since I've recommended a book to you. So I'm sure you've, you've got another book ready to, uh, you, you want another book ready to read? Well, here it is. It is called Pick Your Pieces, Th Some Thoughts to Think About, and it is by Joseph Plummer. And that num name will hopefully ring a bell. If for no other reason, then you will cast your mind back to a previous conversation on the Corbett Report, Interview 1158. Joe Plummer teaches Tragedy and Hope 101, where we discussed Joseph Plummer's book at that time, Tragedy and Hope 101, and uh, its exploration of Carol Quigley's work. Or you might remember Joe Plummer from his appearance in the Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary, corporatereport.com slash big oil. Or you might remember him from, for example, a recent video that he made called A Tale of Two Worlds that I recently linked up as recommended viewing in the subscriber newsletter. I hope you did catch that. If not, it will be linked up in the show notes for today's conversation. Or... You may know Joe Plummer from his yearly, incredibly well-done drum covers, the latest of which, Jimi Hendrix, Fire. And if you haven't seen it yet, you definitely should. It is worth your time. But enough chit-chat. Joe, thank you for joining us once again. Good to be with you, James, as always. You know, I can hardly scarcely believe that it's been seven years since our Tragedy and Hope 101 conversation, six years since Big Oil. That's a long time, and I know you've been productive as always, although not necessarily productive in terms of producing media, etc., but doing lots of things. But one of the things that you did do was to write and publish a new book, Pick Your Pieces, Some Thoughts to Think About. And we're going to get into this book and what it can teach us about ways that we can get out of unhelpful frames of mind and into more positive frames of mind. But first of all, just from your own perspective, what is this book? Where did it come from? Why did you publish it? Okay, so uh, maybe, I don't know, it's best to start with a quote from the book, but I'll try to avoid doing that. The, the essential idea behind this book is that, unfortunately, the ruling class, it, it's not a political book, but I think I wrote it specifically to kind of address a problem that we're facing, which is the political class benefits from manipulating us into states of being that are very unhealthy. So they want us in a state of being that's angry, or they want us terrified if they can accomplish that. They want us depressed. And ultimately, I think their, their real primary goal is to create a state of hopelessness in people. So they feel like, okay, well, there's literally nothing I can do about this, so I'm just going to accept it. You know, what could possibly be a more beneficial state of being for the ruling class than to create hopelessness. Anger is great. Resentment is great. Fear is great. Hopelessness would be probably at the top of their list of things that they want to do. So it got me thinking because I can never stop thinking about how they function and how successful they are, that I could share this concept of self-directed neuroplasticity with people, because that's been a part of my life for a very long time, which I cover in the book. Very brief part of the book is my, uh, my history when I was younger, got into drugs and alcohol very young, 10 years old. I think we all agree that's pretty, pretty young, was in a lot of trouble by the time I was, you know, 15, one to six years sentence behind bars, you know, pretty harsh stuff for a young kid. 
And uh, I had to pull myself out of a lot of that stuff. I had to pull myself out of all of it. And that required a level of self-awareness and understanding of how my brain was functioning that was creating these thoughts and these impulses that were ultimately unhealthy and self-destructive. And then I had to rewire my mind. And this was before anybody even talked about this stuff. I just am fortunate enough to have had some kind of inherent understanding that, you know, one day I'm thinking about this stuff and I don't want any interest in it. And then the next minute, oh my God, I'm thrilled to death. And I have this impulse and this urge to engage in this behavior. What is going on? So I was sitting and looking at that and I was realizing it just had to do with uh, associations and that whenever you're stuck in a particular association, especially if it's, um, you know, if it's firmly established and you've practiced it a lot and it's good and strong and that's, you know, Someone says, hey, let's go get drunk. And you've got a positive association with what it means to go get drunk. You're going to get triggered and you're going to want to go engage in that behavior. Okay. The next day after you remember, you know, let's get gross. Vomiting double cheese pizza out your nose. You don't have that desire as much. Right. So there are two conflicting associations. But then that negative thing goes away and then it's right back into it again. All right. So the issue was me realizing that. Neither one of them is necessarily a fixed trait that I have to accept as me. This is, this is so difficult to convey that all it is really is it's a circuit that exists in my mind that's doing a specific job that it was developed to do. And my job is to recognize that I'm the consciousness that can observe either one of these and decide which one of them is the appropriate association. And by doing that, as long as I'm not continually feeding the unhealthy one, my mind begins to weaken it. It's only when we embrace it. Yeah, man, let's go get drunk and we'll chase some girls and we're going to have some fun. And if that's what alcohol represents to you, then, of course, you're going to be doing what the people say, white knuckling it, trying to fight it. No, it's not that. It's an issue of not embracing that because ultimately, at least in my case, I don't have anything against people who drink or do drugs or whatever. I'm saying for me, it was a very, very self-destructive thing. And it was tied in with a bunch of other self-destructive things. And that I learned that what I needed to do was devise in my mind an alternative that was not only more desirable, but that was ultimately more accurate. No, it isn't fun. No, it isn't worth all these other things. No, it's actually what it is, is it's poison. And it's the enemy of everything that you ever hope to achieve. And if you continue down this path, you're never going to get any of this stuff. You're going to end up dead or in jail, literally, as evidenced by the fact at that point, I was in jail and I was looking at one to six years. So that started this process at 16. Okay, here I am, uh, however many years later, I'm going to be 54 in January it still serves me. I mean, this concept, I mean, it never ends. It never ends this this idea that um, there are so many things that are just in there that we don't have the self-awareness to recognize and then suddenly they'll come up. And and if if we've developed this concept in our mind that we need this observer that keeps an eye on our reactions because that's really what notifies you, you know, whether or not something healthy or unhealthy is going on inside of you. Um, It's just... It never, there's no end to the amount of progress that you can make. So that's a long way of saying, basically, um, through my experience in life and applying this general principle and the principles that I cover in the in the book, which everybody can read for free, as with all my other stuff, as I always say, 
download it for free. Okay, you don't have to buy it. Um, it, it, it occurred to me that, wow, man, we need this in this movement too, because I see so many people who are just poisoning themselves, literally poisoning themselves with anger or, or the people who maybe don't know what's going on and are allowing themselves to be poisoned with fear or resentment. Again, the resentment of, and the, the self-righteous indignation and all of these things that feed something really unhealthy inside of us that they wouldn't be trying to provoke those state, states of being in us if it didn't serve their interests. So just, you know, anybody who's watching this, I'm sure that the book might cover some things that are really difficult because ultimately it's, I got to look back in on myself here. Well, wait a minute. Well, of course, Bill Gates is a scumbag. And of course, Fauci is a horrible monster and all of a sudden. Just, it's, it's not about ignoring what these people are and how they function. It's about altering the way in which you respond to it. So yes, Fauci is what Fauci is, and Bill Gates is what Bill Gates is. They exist, and they uh, represent something in society that we view as unacceptable. That's enough. That's enough. We don't have to poison ourselves with unhealthy energy. We just have to, in fact, I would argue that we're a lot better off, and we have a lot more energy to apply in a productive way if we don't poison ourselves with that unhealthy energy. So that's that's the that's the answer to your question. That's what prompted this book. Now, okay, so let's pick up on that because you raise what I take to be kind of the core central insight of this book that's applied in many, many different ways, which is that you are not your reactions and responses to things. You are not your you are not the sensation that you derive from various experiences. You are that entity that observes these reactions and impulses and desires and cravings and other things and chooses then to either strengthen and reinforce that, that response or to reject it and to, uh, to shape essentially the person you're becoming. And you great, give a great example of that in chapter two that I think is easy to get, get your mind around the process of what you're talking about, which um, is positing some, some theoretical woman named Sally, who's a foodaholic and has the desire to change, knows that it is probably wrong to be scarfing down the, uh, the gallon of ice cream, but uh, it's very tempting. And you say it isn't necessarily the fact that all at once, just overnight, you have to decide I'm never going to touch ice cream again and then never touch it again in your life. But one thing that you can do to put yourself on the path to becoming the person you want to be is to become the person who is then observing yourself as you, okay, I'm going to eat some of this ice cream. Okay. Mm. And then you start, uh, uh, you give a great example and go through it in the book of, of, of essentially treating it almost like a sarcastic, like you're making fun of that, that, that thing, that 100%. entity, that, that wiring in your brain that is making you desire this. Oh, isn't this wonderful poison? I know it's slowly killing me. Mm, isn't that great? And yeah. uh, that's a great example, I think, of how you can start to change a habit, not all at once, not overnight, but to subtly understand that you are different than the habit itself. You are not represented in that habit. I thought that was a great way of putting it. That raises, I think, what I assume this title to mean, pick your pieces, or as you referred to earlier, self-directed neuroplasticity. Let's talk about that, that concept of how we can become aware of ourselves from from uh, from a distance so that we can start to create the person that we want to become. 
first you have to understand that it's a concept that exists. You need the intellectual framework to even think about it from that perspective. Again, these are just pieces of my identity. These are just circuits, literally neurological circuits that I've acquired either deliberately, most of them not deliberately. And that's really the dangerous part about this. They, they, the they, them program us to respond in certain ways to things. Okay. So going back to the political side of it, but if we just speak about it generally, these are just pieces of our identity that we accept as who we are, when in reality, they're just circuits that exist in your brain. And if they're unhealthy and they're not serving you and they're causing harm, they ought not to be there. And you have the capacity as the consciousness that exists above these circuits. You assume the consciousness is higher. There are higher levels of consciousness. And unfortunately, again, we are constantly pushed down into the lowest levels of consciousness where we are the most easy to manipulate. So you need to raise out of those circuits, those circuits that are so filled with certainty, the lower ego. I refer to it in many different ways in the book because, I, I mean, circuits works for me. That's what worked for me when I was, um, you know, like, for instance, when I quit drinking, I quit drinking when I was 21 years old. Well, guess what? I quit drinking many times before I quit drinking. Okay. It was, it took time. It's like a muscle. It's your, your, your body and your mind both change according to how you use them. Okay. So this is the same thing. If you look at your, if, if you, if you look at feeding your body crap and you don't move it at all, it's going to take a shape and a form that is completely different than if you feed your body well and you move it frequently, or at least somewhat frequently, right? You're going to take it, your body will change in shape. Your mind and the way it functions is the same. If it's constantly fed this horrible diet of, of just um, poisonous energy, right? It's not going to take a shape that's useful to you or to anybody else. If instead you start to say, okay, I see the source of this unhealthy diet of thoughts and I want to shape my mind differently. Right now it's wired to do this. So that's what it's going to do. It's producing exactly what it's been wired to do. I want it to do something else. So I'm going to wire it to do that something else. And as you pointed out, I use Sally because I remember specifically doing something very similar with that with alcohol. And I mean, it was brutal. I was attacking those. I mean, I was not giving it any. There was no room. It was, I'm not going to curse. My wife told me, just make sure you don't curse. Okay. I, I, I tend to curse. But man, there was a lot of, there was some cursing going on whenever those, those impulses and those thoughts would pop back up again. Because man, I'm not having it. Not having it. No. Bullshit. That is not what it is. It is not that. It's this. Period. And the beautiful thing is, is thank God now at this point, the uh, the scientific community has established that yes, this is real. It isn't. It isn't just some theoretical thing that some guy thinks exists, and he he now believes he's no. You literally can rewire your mind. And I remember when I was younger, some guy telling me I was probably only like twelve years old. No, once you're, they still believe this in like the eighties, like eighty two ish. No, man, once you're 30, you can't change anything. And I mean, they sincerely believe that. I remember even then thinking to myself, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. So somebody loses their job at 30 and then they can't learn how to do another job. I mean, I was trying to, I, I think I actually presented that and he didn't have an answer because he was just repeating something he heard. But now it is proven that what happens is you not only, your brain does not 
just start creating these new circuits that you then have the ability to direct the, the new ones that you want to embrace as you embrace them, they become stronger, they become more powerful. It prunes, prunes is the word that they use for neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity, easy for me to say. Uh, it prunes the um, it prunes the old connections and they're gone. They just weaken and weaken and weaken and atrophy. And then your brain's like, okay, don't want that anymore. That's not what it is. I mean, how beautiful and incredibly powerful is that? And it's just a, it's a, it's an amazing thing to, in my view. It's just a really an amazing reality or, or an amazing um, aspect of our reality that we literally can, if we develop the capacity to separate ourselves a bit from the, um, that egoic mind, that lower circuit driven, this is all I am. This is, this is how things are. If we can just pull ourselves back a little bit and say, okay, well, wait a minute, maybe I can do a little bit better than that. You can save yourself a lot of pain and suffering. I would not be here if I hadn't period. I just wouldn't have been. I certainly would have, I probably would have uh, not made it, man. I didn't get into all the ugly stuff, but man, I was on a really bad trajectory. It didn't take, it didn't take exceptional pattern recognition skills for me to see where that was going. Maybe that's a good thing. I suppose I, I do, I, I understand what you are articulating here from my own perspective, because it occurred to me at a certain point that you have to desire the change that you want. Not not just desire the change, but desire the end goal of what it is you're seeking. And I, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but my, my paradigmatic example of this, and the one that made me really understand this process, occurred something like 20 years ago when I was, I was here in Japan, and I was working my job and going out drinking with friends at night and what have you, and just having fun. But I wanted to be, what I really wanted to be was a writer. And I was... I always felt bad that I wasn't writing enough. You know, I would write when inspiration struck now and then, but it wasn't enough, and I knew I needed to write more. And I don't know... See, this is the mystery, and if you have any insight into this, I'd love to hear it. But at some point, I realized I, I'm addicted to going out and just partying and having fun and, and working my job and just going through life. I should become addicted to writing. I should crave and desire writing. So I wake up in the morning and you'd have to stop me from going out and just going to the cafe and writing a couple of pages. And I did. I became addicted to that lifestyle. And every day I would get up and I would look forward to going out and, and writing a couple of pages. And I, I don't know exactly how to articulate that in a way that makes sense to anyone else. But I understand on a deep level, you have to desire the thing that it is that you're working towards in and of itself, um, rather than just sort of like, oh, I wish I could be, or no, you have to desire the actual act of doing that thing. Um, and uh, that raises to me the question, okay, well, how do you, how do you instill that desire in yourself? <laughs> because until you really want that change, I don't know, uh, to a certain extent, you're going to get your, in your own way of, of enacting that change. It, it's simple. We, we call it habits. There are habits of thought and habits of behavior. And again, these are directly associated with the circuits. So first, it has to occur to you that, hey, maybe I like something else. I, I would like to be a writer. I would like to be a guy that's actually out producing content that, you know, uh, is cathartic in some way or valuable or produces, you know, that I can share with other people. So that appears in your mind. But unfortunately, 
there is this uh, all of these circuits that are established that make it so much easier to just continue what you're doing. So you have to, at some point, at some point, what you did is you started interrupting those circuits. You, that's the only way it happened. It's the only way it can happen. You start interrupting them and saying, okay, so of course the default easy habit is to just fall into, okay, I'm going to go out drinking. I'm going to go out, hang out with my friends, whatever. No, I'm going to not do that right now. I want to sit my ass down and, and, um, well, what you were doing ultimately is that you sat your ass down and you started developing the neurological structures in your mind that would make it easier for you to sit your ass down again. All right. I mean, over and over again, you, you did that to a point to where then it became easier for you to sit in a chair and write than it would be for you to ignore the impulse to sit in the chair and write. So like right now, I mean, you, you could not pay me enough to drink alcohol. Well, at one point, you didn't have to pay me at all. Okay, but now because it is so firmly established in my mind that it's poison, I don't want it. I don't want it any more than I want them to inject me with some uh, mRNA. I almost swore again. Okay, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I just don't want it. So that's the process. That is the process that you went through. You And I'll tell you, there, there are potential downsides to it. Okay, so now that I've I'm a hermit. Like literally all I want to do is put my nose in books, read things and, and, and summarize stuff and look for insights that I think might be potentially useful that, that a tale of two worlds. I'm like, Oh man, how can I present how ridiculous all this was? And I've been, that's been going through my mind ever since 2020. I, I don't know if you ever saw COVID-19 on trial. That's the first one I did in September of 2020 before the vaccine came out. Anyway, the idea is, here that I'm getting at, it can be a, become a problem because I, I, now I'm spoiled. It's harder for me to to pull my way, pull myself away to play my drums. You know, like I was telling you before we started recording, I put my drums in my office so I will look at them more often because I know that it is healthy for me. I know that spiritually and creatively and just energetically, music is awesome. But because I've conditioned myself so much to be on that other I mean it's still creative writing is still creative but it's a different kind of thing it's not typically I mean there is a spark of feeling good when you when you come up with something you feel like okay this can help this is going to wake somebody up or good at least or at least they'll understand the perspective maybe they won't accept it but they'll see why people think this way um that's not the same as playing Jimi Hendrix fire or Rush, Tom Sawyer, or whatever these these songs that inspire you and make you feel a certain way. So you can, what am I trying to say? I'm still applying the same principle. It's just I'm saying, okay, let's not go too far. Don't become just too much geared towards this now. Just like you can be Sally who just wants to sit on the couch and eat donuts and wash it down with a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew. You don't want to be the guy who only just does this stuff. Right. Remember their well, it's a question out. of intentionality. Um, as you point out in the book with regards to fitness, most people think of fitness and put it in a paradigm where it is all about being, holding yourself to a level of the, the specialist, competitive, you know, Olympian at a, a level of fitness. Whereas realistically, no, what you want is just general fitness, which is not the same as being able to deadlift 700 pounds. It's just being fit enough to be able to use your body in the way that you want. 
And I think similarly, as you're pointing out here, it can be the process, yeah, you can become so completely focused on one goal that you exclude everything else to your own detriment. But then again, it just depends on what, do you want to be that specialist who does that one thing as excellently as anyone in the world, or do you want to be a well-rounded person? And maybe that comes down to a personal decision, and maybe it, th those calculations change at different times of your life, depending on what you want. But I think that that at least helps set the parameters of, again, it comes back to what you want to do, and then you figure out the the process by which that can happen by strengthening various circuits, etc. And I think this raises... For people who might be wondering, what does this have to do with the types of stuff Cor that Corbett generally talks about? Um, I, I will point people to uh, chapter 3, um, verse 47. <laughs> I don't know how to describe. The, for people who haven't seen the book yet, they, it's broken into essentially like aphorisms, and these are numbered. And number 47 in uh, chapter 3, the only thing worse than giving somebody false hope is filling them with false hopelessness, which is a a wonderful way to express what I attempted to express towards the end of my video on A Brief History of Hopium, where, of course, I was picking apart the the false hope that is given to people through the political system. Oh, here's your political savior who's going to save you. Just vote for this guy and everything will be better. That is the hopium that they use to keep people placated and keep people from doing things. But I wanted to contrast that, that false hope, with the false hopelessness that everything, anyone that promises anything that could ever be better, it's that they're lying to you, it's hopium, don't believe him, blah, blah, blah. No, I think there is genuine hope that comes from the ability to understand and correctly apprehend that if you change certain processes, if you change the way you're living your life, you can affect the world around you. And I think that's that plays into this this victim mindset, the victim mentality that you talk about in the book as well, that unfortunately can be seeded into people's consciousness uh, and that I see all too often in the independent media of people who just go completely overboard with they, them, those control everything and everyone and anyone's going to be assassinated if they talk up and uh, we're, it's all inevitable. And that's what I feel compelled especially through Solutions Watch, to try to combat. I do not think that everything is hopelessness, and I think there are things that we can do to actually change, if not the global situation generally. At the very least, we can change our own lives and thus act as a model to others about how they can change their lives, and I think it is through that action that we can actually truly change the world. But your thoughts on that, on that, those things? First of things. all, that was beautifully stated, 100%. I love it. Um, the idea is at the end of the day, first of all, the, the, the people who are constantly, I, I don't know what they're doing. Are you averse to what the people you're angry with are trying to achieve? Because if you're averse to what they're trying to achieve, why then are you out there saying everything's hopeless? Because you have to know that that ultimately only empowers them. Even if it was hopeless, why would you want to make it easier on them? What's the point? I mean, okay, here we get into some more of the lower ego stuff. The lower ego loves certainty. It loves certainty, loves to say other people are stupid, they're gullible, they're this, they're that. You're feeding something unhealthy in yourself if you do that. Everybody does it at some level. Get your observer going. You'll start to recognize it. Trust me, it's not easy to route that out. You can do it. It's a, it's a choice, but ultimately you are feeding something unhealthy inside of yourself. If you, again, we'll talk about pattern recognition. 
embrace doing that for a while, see where it leads and see if you like the direction it's heading and then go from there. So the only thing I can think that they derive from doing that is that lower egoic certainty of, of feeling like they know something that they of course cannot possibly know. But let's say for just, let's, let's just use, I don't know. I'll try to use a different analogy here. We're all going to die. Okay. Period. I think unless they come up with some marvelous new technology, we're all going to die. What value would a life have if a person from the moment they were able to conceptualize the fact that they were inevitably going to die, that that's all that they focused on was the fact that they were going to die? What value would you derive from that? It's true. You're going to die. Okay. But if that's all you do is live in a state of fear and resentment and anger and depression and all that, you lost the entire life focused on something that was completely useless, okay? Instead of actually making something in your life and all of the wonderful memories and all of the wonderful experiences and all of the opportunity to grow and feel like you've contributed and you're a part of something bigger than yourself, all of that goes away because you're focused on this. And, not, and now that's a fact, we're all gonna die. This isn't even a fact. This is they, they assume it's a fact. It provides that egoic certainty. They assume it's a fact that, oh, it's all hopeless. It's, it's utterly ridiculous in my view. No offense to think that. Like these people, I have never, well, let me put it to this way. I've been at this seriously. I, I really started waking up probably around 2001 after, after 9-11 was when I really started to see it. I had seen corruption prior to that. But I mean, at the, at the level that it exists, I, it wasn't until after 9-11 that I really started to see it. In the past, how many years has that been? 22 years now? Okay. In the past 22 years, I have never seen the thing that they rely on more than anything, which is the illusion of their legitimacy at a lower level. I've never seen it. They have never been they have more technology now and they have more ways to try to control things. But at the same time, the one thing that everything they do depends on this illusion of their legitimacy is weaker than it's ever been. And then we also have technologies that are emerging. You know, the second thing that they rely on 100% is the monetary system, their ability to fund the, this army of, I'm not going to call them idiots, this army of, of human beings that for a paycheck are willing to serve them, right? We have these emerging decentralized parallel systems in money, in media, in education, in medicine, even like during COVID where people are like, okay, screw this. I can't, I have to go online. I want ivermectin. I go online. I find a way to order it. I can do that now. So all of, and at some point, if this 3D printing thing ever gets off the ground that they've been talking about forever, you'll be able to literally, um, it won't matter what they say. If there is something that's actually proven that can be cured, you, somebody's going to have a 3D printer that can create that right there. So what will that do the, to the current model of medicine? So we, we'll assume decentralized emerging parallel systems in money, in media, in medicine, definitely in education, in agriculture, in energy, all of these things are happening and coming online right now. They did not monopolize all of these things for no reason. They monopolized them because those are levers of power that they need to control. So if they can't control it, they won't be able to control these decentralized ones. What do they have to rely on at that point? So I don't know if that inspires the people who are convinced that it's all doom and gloom, that clearly it is not. 
we have never been in a better position than we are now. They would have pushed that COVID, that COVID thing as disheartening as that was. At the end, it turned because I could not believe how easy it was for them to convince everybody that they, we were facing an apocalyptic threat when the actual numbers, if they would just divide the number of deaths by the number of people on the planet, they would have been able to easily understand that that is insane to think that anybody's risk of death, even in the most vulnerable groups, had gone up by any significant amount. I mean, even among the most vulnerable, if you divided the 1.5 million uh, by the 450 million in that age group, you're talking about one third of 1% increase in that age, in that demographic, one third of 1%, that isn't everybody's going to die. 5.5% die in that age group every year. 5.5. So you go from 5.5% to 5.8%. Everything has to be scrapped. Turn, turn the world upside down. It's all about protecting you, right? Give me a break. Are you kidding me? It's absolutely insane. It was clearly they, they were, if you were to ask the normal person, what percentage of the population, okay, so we'll say in 2019, less than 1% of the Earth's population died. In 2020, when COVID hit, before there was a vaccine, what do you think that percentage went up to? How many people do you think would have said like 5%? It probably killed 5% of the population. Had be, I mean, because even 5% doesn't sound that bad. Doesn't sound like an apocalypse. It's terrible. How many of them would have said less than 1%? like literally almost exactly the same number that it always is. It went from, you know, 0.75 of 1% to 0.76 or 0.77 of 1%. Or among the most vulnerable, the 70 over, it went from 5.5%, 25 million die in that age group every year, 25 million, no COVID. And it's not an apocalypse. Now, all of a sudden, it goes up by just a third of a percent, and it goes to 26.5 million, and then the whole world needs to be shut down. I'm kind of going off on a tangent. Right. But it, it goes started. to show that the framing and perception of things like this are uh, manipulated for reasons of getting people specifically to change things that they otherwise would not change. And that's even if you believe their phony baloney made up deaths uh, statistics that were pointed out by Denny Roncourt and others. I mean, clearly. I think the point... I think the point I was trying to make was that towards the end, even the most ardent people stopped getting boosted. Even the people who were taken in the most, I mean, how many millions of people were woken up? Do you think that they wouldn't have pushed their 100% biometric security? You've got to be, uh, you've got to be vaccinated to get your, to get your authentication thing. So you can buy, they would have done all of that if they felt that they could have got away with it and they couldn't get away with it. And so that to me is a sign that, they they played they overplayed their hand. They woke a lot of people up, and I think we're in a better position now. I wish it wouldn't have gone as far as it did, but I feel like we're in a better position now. So, regarding the people who think it's all hopeless, I, I just don't see it that way. But that's that's based on my own observation over the past twenty plus years and uh, watching what's what's going on and right before us. Well, I agree with that assessment, and that is why I do what I do. Um, if I truly believed. There's no hope. I wouldn't be here doing this. I would be off just partying and enjoying life until I inevitably die the terrible death at the hands of the they, them, those, right? So um, uh, I think this is in line with the observation, chapter one, uh, aphorism 41. Either you're going to do the work or you're not. 
If you're going to do it, complaining about the process only drains energy that could be put to better use. And if you're not going to do it, well, then you're, you've got nothing to complain about. So I think that's that kind of is what it boils down to. All right, so if you think it's inevitable, the the, the conspirators are gonna, just going to have their way and everything, well, okay, then you've got nothing to complain about. Just go live your life and die and wait for, wait for the inevitable end. But for those of us who are making efforts to change our lives and thereby hopefully start the chain reaction that changes the world, well, leave us to our, our fun. Um, but I will point out, again, uh, this, obviously, this impinges on every aspect of our lives, including the types of things that I deal with and, and concerned with at the Corporate Report, but I think everything else as well. And uh, I, I, I just hope people will take a look at the book so that they can get a better idea of some of the things you talk about. For example, I loved some of these observations. Um, chapter 1, number 15, it's better to be laughed at for trying than to be accepted for not. Sure, absolutely. Or uh, chapter 5, number 49. Note to self, there will always be unreasonable people. If you can't come to terms with that, you might just be one of them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's a great turn of phrase. Um, it, it is an interesting book in the way that it is written aphoristically. It's not generally constructed in paragraphs that lead into bigger arguments that are connected one to another. It's just these sort of short, sharp observations. How and why did it come to you to write this book in this manner. I'm glad you asked. James, basically most of that stuff was my observer talking to my <laughs> my inner idiot. Okay, so I use the term, I use all kinds of different phrases to to describe the circuits, the programs, the lower ego. One of the ones that a couple of my friends really liked was the inner idiot because basically that's this collection of circuits that create these unhealthy self-destructive, poisonous reactions within us, uh, you know, combined that that constitutes this inner idiot that you're kind of at war at and you get better at it as you work on it. So a lot of this stuff, that note to self, literally was a note to myself. It's a note to myself. Look, man, this is the way it is. And if you, if you can't come to grips with the fact that there's always going to be some unreasonable person out there, maybe you're being unreasonable. That's just probably... I'd say 85 to 90 percent of that book began from notes that I have been making for God knows how long that I said, OK, these are all things that help me. These are all reminders that helped me and helped keep me on track. I had to rewrite some of them to, to kind of make them more accessible for somebody else. You know, but generally speaking, that's what it was. A lot of that stuff is just, uh, you know, let me hold on a minute. I got a couple here. Maybe we can have um, this is one that this is one that I had to remind myself a lot of. If you don't train your brain, it will behave like a reactionary idiot. Your first thought slash response to daily provocations is rarely the best. And it's never the only option that you can choose from. Develop better responses and you'll eliminate an enormous amount of unnecessary suffering from your life. So just now. You read that and it's like, okay, yeah, I kind of get it. But then apply it. Like, like think of the people who had never heard of Joe Biden. Okay. They'd never heard of Joe Biden before. They didn't know who he was. And now just the word Joe Biden makes them lose their mind. They are so filled with hatred. They are so filled with, my God, he's such an idiot. And all this, all of that is not helping them at all. It's not helping uh, them be more productive. It's just burning. Same thing with Trump. Let's say Trump. Think of the, the, the Trump derangement syndrome is real. So think of 
people who all they have to do is see the name before there was no circuit in their brain about Donald Trump. It didn't exist. And then it was created. And now it's there. And literally the media, just like with Pavlov's dogs, can trigger them in a moment effortlessly whenever they want and keep them in that state all day long, all week long, all month long, all year long. And that's what they do. So at some point you have to say, wait a minute, man, what, what is going on here? Am I really going to like live like this? And it could be any, any headline, any topic, any name, any person, whatever it is, when you really start digging into something like that, do I want to be a reactionary idiot? Do I want to live my life as this person that doesn't have control over how I respond to the outside world? Like I do not get to choose how other people think and behave, but I do get to choose how I respond to them. It's like literally the only thing I get to choose. So am I going to make that choice or am I just going to be jerked around like a fool? So that, that would be an example of something um, when I was really getting into this stuff, realizing like, man, this is some really heavy, ugly stuff, but I'm responding in a way that isn't hurting the people that's doing it. I'm responding in a way that's hurting me. So I got to stop doing that. I got, and, and like I said, it's one, one note, realization, insight after another of that they came about after years of being in this space and hopefully you know other people who are in this space will be able to derive some value from that from that stuff that's the, that's the, that's the goal I think they will. And the best part about this is, like all of your books, it is, of course, available as an Honest God real paper book that you can purchase. But it's also available on joeplumber.com completely for free, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, all of your books are available in that form as well. Talk about that, because that's not something most people will do. I am most interested in affecting change. So, you know, I described this to somebody a while back, you know, um, I would rather if, if I had a choice of reaching 1 million people, and I'm going to use these numbers just arbitrarily. If I had a choice of reaching 1 million people with information that I felt was valuable and only selling 100,000 books total over my lifetime or whatever it is versus selling 200,000 books and losing 800,000 people. There is literally no, there, there isn't even a, a second of hesitation on which one I'd rather want. I mean, I derive the greatest pleasure or feeling of, of reward from feeling like, or hearing from people and from feeling like that this is actually helping to affect the change that I feel. I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, would I be thrilled to death if, Joe Rogan starts talking about Tragedy and Hope 101. I mean, it's not that I don't want people to have physical copies. I think it's important because they can literally turn this stuff off and make it disappear. I do provide PDFs, though, so you can download a PDF and you can have a heart. So it's not just HTML. So if they shut my website down, you could still have a copy of it. But, you know, it's good to have physical copies. And I, it's not that I'm against that. And it's not that if Joe Rogan started or somebody with a huge audience started talking about it and it sold 100,000 copies, it, in a short period of time or whatever, that that wouldn't be great. It's just that it's not the primary motivation. Yes, I'd be happy um, 
you know, I, I don't know if we've ever discussed this. It, you know, it was only because I made money back in early during the dot-com bubble that I was able to, to work for free for more than a decade writing it and researching all this stuff. And I exhausted all that. And I was never resentful about it. I mean, I wound up going from living in a really nice house and driving really nice cars and having all kinds of stuff to, uh, you know, lose, losing. I'm not going to say losing. Um I invested, mm. I invested all of that yes. value in something else. And what I got in return for the nice cars and the, in the, in the nice house and all that other stuff were those books and that information. And that was a trade that I would make again today if I was offered it. That, that resonates so much with me and investment, I think is exactly the right word in that. I, I like to think I'm investing in the future of the world that I want to bring into creation for, for my children and leave behind for them by doing this work. And that's the one thing that I, I always encountered problems with people in the past. They never quite understood. Wait, you, you do documentaries and things and you put them online for free? <laughs> yep. <laughs> 100% totally free. Here it is. Uh, here's my life's work. Take it. <laughs> and hey, if you like, you can support it as well. And thankfully enough, people do take me up on that offer. But it's exactly right. I know, I know that if I had made the big oil documentary and Century of Enslavement and 9-11 War Games and all these documentaries and made them DVDs, then you can only get the DVD and I won't put it out online one sliver of a fraction of a tenth of a percentage point of the number of people who have seen it would have seen it. And so, exactly. absolutely, I want this out there. So I'm putting it out there, and and I like to see the other people understand that. And hopefully, the, the idea is, if we provide something that's genuinely valuable to people, they will want to support that work and to help support what we do. So I hope people will, if they can, if they have the resources, I hope they will purchase the physical copy. But... There it is on your site as well, joeplumber.com. And of course, I'll be linking to that. Um, and also, I understand you've been doing something interesting with an older book of yours, Dishonest Money. You've been giving out copies of that. Distributing, yeah. I got, uh, I set a goal. Oh God, it was it was probably only about a month and a half ago. And it was to distribute 1,000 free copies, physical copies of the book. And I'm at 975 right now, so... If there are 25 people in the audience who really want a copy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, you know, before that, I was I was selling them basically for just below the shipping cost. So that's still available, too. Like, if they want to cover the shipping, it's it, you get five copies for five bucks. If you want ten copies, you get ten copies for ten bucks. That's at the website. And, uh, yeah, that makes that, that makes me happy, too. Because even if only 10% of the people who who get their hands on it start digging into it, then, you know, look at it from this perspective. You know, I know how good it makes me feel that you exist. Okay. And I imagine it makes you feel good to know that I and a bunch of other people that listen to your, your content exist. So from no other, from no other perspective of results being attached to the result or anything else, just helping people understand that this fake sense of being alone and isolated and 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 um, disconnected from how everybody else feels. They need to know that no, you're not. So that I that makes me feel good too. So somebody is getting this book handed to them, and and they're they're opening it up, and it's like, my God, this is fantastic. I didn't even know that there were people out here, like the the people who are still sleeping, right? And they they just feel like, okay, I don't feel like things are the way I'm being told they are. I don't understand this and I feel like I'm not supposed to understand it. Okay, now they open this up and now all of a sudden they understand how the monetary system works 
and that there are other people out there that can easily understand how the monetary system works. And there's people out there that want to help understand all of that creates a sense of community and, and a sense of feeling stronger than the way they felt prior to that. Prior, they just felt like, I don't get it. And I would like to understand it, but I don't know where to start. And none of my friends are interested in anything other than drinking beer and watching football. And so, yeah, from that perspective, I think that there's that that element of it, too, to just know that when you had uh, Daniel Ganser on, man, I was so thrilled with where that where that interview went in the end. I didn't expect for him to start talking about consciousness and start talking about purposes greater than yourself. And, and it was so sincere and so beautiful. Well, what, what is he touching on right there? He's making me feel like I'm not like I'm not alone. Now, other people might not be able to relate to it, but man, it was good for me. It made me feel great. I was like, oh man, this is, I wouldn't have expected this from an academic. It's good to know that this guy who is very, very detailed and fact-based and all this other stuff has explored those areas in his mind. So yeah, it was great. Exactly right. Well, I think it comes down to fundamental motivations and inspirations. And I think you can either be motivated by anger and hatred and fear and resentment, and I don't want that, and I'm pushing back, or you can be motivated out of love. I want to create this. I want more of this in the world. And there is a definite difference in the mindset that produces that and then what is produced from those mindsets. And I think it shows. I think it shows when people pick up a book like this and really start to dive into it. I hope they will do so. But I think I think we'll leave this conversation here for today. There's obviously so much more to explore, but we could spend probably a hundred hours exploring it and still only scratch the surface. At any rate, nothing will actually be getting the book itself and actually reading through it. So uh, I think we'll leave it there for today. But Joe Plummer, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. I'm joeplummer.com. And I hope people will keep, a, keep an eye out on Joe Plummer for future wor works and projects. Any books coming in the near future? Well... Right now, I'm actually working on a 15th anniversary to Dishonest Money, okay? And then after that, uh, I don't know. I've, I've, uh, I saw your Tuttle Twins, what's his name? I'm sorry. Connor Boyack. Yeah, Connor. I've been thinking for years about writing something that's at least team-friendly, a Tragedy and Hope 101 team-friendly version. That would be the easier project for me. The other project would be something that really just gets into everything. It gets into everything from eugenics, all the different levers of power that they control and tries to summarize everything that I've covered up to this point. I, I talked about this a long time ago. We, we covered it in your documentary slightly, but I hadn't, I hadn't been able to really dig into it as deeply as I wanted to at that point. It was just kind of like touching it on a surface level to really show, like I've got a, a copy of Ecoscience over here and that I would like to go through and really pull out some of those quotes where they're talking about putting sterilants in the water and, you know, national security study memorandum 200, where they said, we got to reduce global fertility and Oh, shucks. When, you know, global fertility just started going down like this. Yeah. You know, a lot to cover there. Yeah. I think right now people are, uh, I really believe more of them are open to the idea of looking at this stuff and realizing it's real. So, yeah, the, the more difficult, if I really want to torture myself, that's probably a good year and a half. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see, buddy. I'll let you know for sure. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever it is you come up with. In the meantime, JoePlumber.com. I think we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. It's great being with you, James, always.